When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Letter Roll Maxi series discussing Michelangelo Matos' book, The Underground is Massive, How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Let It Roll is the insanely ambitious musical history podcast. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Today, Nate and Ryan talk about the 2000 Detroit Electronic Music Festival, which finally brought the techno pioneers a measure of popular acclaim in their home city. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. Or should I say techno roll? That means I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, joined once again by Ryan Harkness to continue our discussion of Michelangelo Matos's The Underground is Massive, How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America. And today we're talking about the chapter that covers the Detroit Electronic Music Festival, held May 26th to 29th, the year 2000, right there in Detroit. Ryan, this is the feel-good episode of the series. Yeah, uh, Dempf went better than anybody could have expected, especially given how kind of uh, questionable people were feeling about it leading up to it. But it, it came off big. Uh, official numbers, over a million people went through, and it, it set up uh, an amazing festival that continues to this day as movement. And uh, I, you know, I was around. I didn't go to any of the the Demps. I had Wemps in Toronto to go to, so I was too busy doing that. But I, I was on all the message boards, watching all the chatter, and seeing everybody get so excited for it when it all came off. And and people were flying high, man. It was great. Yeah, it was a long time coming. The techno scene in Detroit had been percolating since the early '80s. It had conquered the world, at least Europe and East Asia and South America and Israel and. But it had not conquered the states, definitely not conquered its hometown. So this was kind of a big valedictory victory lap for for the hometown crew. But we got to pour a little ice water on it because we got to talk about the Me Too allegations against Derek May, one of the Belleville Three, one of the founding fathers of the scene, 
But nonetheless, there's a lot of ugly allegations about him. And we feel like we should mention it and explain why we're still talking about Derek May, because you can't avoid him. Yeah, I mean, I kind of feel like uh, I'm I'm not interested in defending anybody. Uh, I'm also I also can't in good conscience erase Derek May's contributions to techno music out of the uh, the narrative. Uh, you know, there are certain people in history that 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 had huge influence, uh, like Gandhi, uh, key figure in Indian independence. But uh, if you if you Google some Google a little bit deeper about his situation with kids and stuff like that, there's some dark allegations. But you can't really separate, uh, you know, him from the history book. So as far as like bringing up Derek May and bringing it, I just want to put it out there that you know we definitely don't support Derek May and, and any of the things that that he's. Uh, being alleged to do with uh, with women over the years, of which there are numerous allegations. Uh, but at the same time, we are going to be bringing him up in this episode. Uh, he does have that core position uh, in Detroit techno history, and uh, you know, it's just that that's that that's that's just the reality of it. Yeah, I mean, this series we talk about Ike Turner, we talk about Phil Spector, um, Jerry Lee Lewis, all kinds of people that have done all kinds of of questionable, shady things who nonetheless had a massive impact on musical history. And we're just trying to be honest about that and give you the full rounded perspective on this stuff. These are human beings with faults and sometimes uh, sociopathic behavior. But anyway, let's get back get back to the festival. Mato starts out with a little bit um, of an update of where the scene in Detroit and the greater Detroit area had gotten in the late 90s before this festival happened. He said it was getting more formulaic, that it was always Terry Mullen and Rabbit in the Moon uh, DJing the, the big parties. The kids were getting younger. The Russian mafia was involved, um, hand, taking over the nitrous and the, and the ecstasy and the acid dealing at, at the raves and parties. The parties were flagrant drug markets that frequently that promoters would hire lawyers to man the door to try to keep the cops out, you know, spewing a bunch of constitutional rights and stuff at the police. Sometimes lawyers can trump the police. It's when, and we'll talk about this next chapter. It's when you get the feds, et cetera, in there that the local lawyers stop working. Yeah, the cops didn't really understand exactly why things were illegal back then. And they didn't really feel the way that cops do now, which is kind of you have to convince me why I shouldn't why this isn't uh, illegal. Whereas back in the day, if they wanted to shut down a party, you could have somebody there in a suit over the age of 25 who would basically say what you know what charge uh what bylaw infractions are we doing and if it was a bylaw infraction they could just say okay just write me a ticket um we used to have uh, a lawyer guy who used to take care of us until he robbed us <laughs> so it's always <laughs> a, a, yeah. an interesting time like that it's a good on one hand but these guys are you know sleazy sketchy lawyers doing this kind of stuff for a reason but yeah detroit was getting pretty uh the, the rave scene had turned into a full-on rave scene, which, you know, a lot of the more established techno promoters were were always not very happy about. Um, so you had the traveling carnival of all the same names that you've been seeing since 94. It was getting a bit stale at the turn of the 2000s because you had basically just the the, the godfathers of the scene. And then you had the guys coming up on, on moonshine compilations and stuff like that. And then all the UK and Europe guys that you were seeing in Mixmag. And those were the only names that you were really seeing. There was a lot of, you know, scene DJs, uh, but not nationwide, you know, there was no big new names coming up. It was getting a little stale. Yeah. And, and if you'll remember when we talked about this era um, an energy flash and Simon Reynolds uh, telling of the of the tale from the UK 
there's big doings going on over there with Speed Garage and Two Step, and and they're kind of responding to the innovations of Timbaland and other hip hop producers. And we'll talk about some of the hip hop producers that are electronic uh, adjacent in Detroit this time. But first, we take a little detour to talk about the first Coachella, which took place in October of 1999 and this um founded by philip blaine that we've been talking about he was involved with organic 96 his company golden voice was the promoters they had plenty of rock acts at the at the first coachella they had back rage against the machine tool all your standard kind of 90s alternative rocker dudes but they had lots of electronic acts you had the chemical brothers underworld moby which is like the same guys we've been talking about headlining um big raves and festivals for the, like the last three weeks, it seems like. Plus, you had all three of the Belleville Three, Juan Atkins, Derek May, Kevin Saunderson there. You had Richie Houghton, BT. Uh, Mato says it was not a rock show with a rave tent. It was closer to a rave with rock bands. Yeah, um, you look at the lineup, and the first Coachella is interesting because it's just a few mainstream bands and then a ton of dance music. Like The flyer is like the first third is bands, and then the rest – is DJs and the amount of drum and bass on that lineup is ridiculous. It's, they had DJ Rap, LTJ Bookham, Four Hero, a bunch of trip hop guys like DJ Shadow and Amon Tobin. Uh, there was a little bit of everything from like techno to trance to breaks to jungle to IDM, uh, hip hop and turntablism. It was a real smorgasbord event. And this is not your standard thing. Like the generalized idea was, you know, keep them separated. It's not going to work, uh, especially at this point in time because. Coachella happened right after Woodstock 99, which obviously was a massive uh, disaster. And and the general opinion in America was that you just can't make me. Well, this was the feeling was that you can't bring 100,000 people together without it turning into a riot. Yeah. And and a couple of things saved Coachella from that fate. One, they weren't trying to extort people for, you know, five, six dollar bottles of water in, in the summer heat with no shade. It was fall. The weather, weather was beautiful and it was California and people were a little bit more mellow, a bit more used to large gatherings. They'd been to the, you know, decades of the Grateful Dead and that kind of stuff. And they'd had uh, a decade's worth of experience with massive raves uh, in Southern California. So, um, you know, they were more prepared for it. And it was also a European style festival. Lollapalooza was dead and Woodstock was clearly a disaster and not the road to take. And finally, American promoters started copying the model that worked, which was the European musical festival that had been going on uh, for decades. But let's hear our first track. This is the Inner Zone Orchestra, programmed in 1999. programs the 1999 track from inner zone orchestra and why just select this one uh inner zone orchestra also uh known as carl craig he was there at uh, coachella and he also plays a, a huge part in detroit electronic music festival so i figured you know i was trying to find some interesting live recordings from the first coachella and electronic wise there's only autecker 
that's the only like electronic act that got recorded. Every, <laughs> everything else, like they got Morrissey, they got Rage Against the Machine and stuff like that. But the only, and I was just like, okay, well, well, Autechre is a bit much. So let's just grab Carl Craig. He was there and he's about to star in this chapter. So let's, let's give him that opening slot. I think that's a good call. And my kid thanks you. He hates Autechre. Probably the most, uh, negative response i've gotten and i play him all kinds of weird historical music and he really singled that one out for some some beef but yeah and carl craig's a perfect pivot because he's the key guy who starts talking to detroit city officials about holding a festival along with rob dixon of planet e records which is carl craig's label there had already been an attempt to do something like this in 1994 the world party which was a disaster only had a thousand people show up in a 20,000 capacity uh, Joe Louis arena and um but the woman who organized that Carol Marvin had gone on to produce the Detroit International Jazz Festival which had been reasonably successful and so she was a good partner for Craig to reach out to yeah, apparently it was Carl Craig, Kevin Saunderson, and Derek May that that had started talking about a Detroit electronic music festival and the idea of holding it in Hart Plaza. And they started talking about that in 1990, 1996, 1997. And Carol Marvin was, was kind of came in and started talking to them as well about it. Uh, and she was talking to Derek May about it. And Derek May uh, later left and she hired Carl Craig to be the artistic director for the whole thing. The, the World Party was like a weird one because it's it's a lot of the same names. It's like a big Detroit celebration. It had Inner City and, and all of the, the godfathers of, of Detroit techno. Uh, but it was also supposed to be this big event to celebrate the, the Soccer World Cup that was being held in the US at the time. And obviously I remember that being a big deal uh, but or them trying to everybody trying to make it a big deal, but it not being a big deal and nobody caring. And I don't know if it was because it was tied to an event that people just weren't were cool with or whether or not uh, Carol Marvin was just doing that thing that out, outsiders do is they try to throw a rave without being part of the rave scene. And that's why it failed. But it was uh, it, it, it did not go well. Yeah, it might have been just too much too soon. It, it you know, the, these things come in ebbs and flows, and it was pretty close to sort of one of the troughs of the Detroit techno scene and before um, uh, the next sw upswing. And, but when they came back in 2000, the timing obviously was really good. And, and Craig had worked with Marvin. He had DJed at, at the Absolute Couture charity fashion show, and, um, you know, that, that had gone well. They worked together. And she had a PR company, Pop Culture Media, that was able to help. And they roped in Detroit Mayor Dennis Archer. And one of the things they did was leak things to the press kind of early. Like they got Joshua Glazer, who's the dance music columnist for the Real Detroit Weekly, to break the story, even though it wasn't quite, you know, all the I's had not been dotted and teased crossed. But they got it out there. They got it in the paper, and that kind of built uh, some momentum. Carl Craig also announced the event on stage in Miami at the 2000 Winter Music Conference, and that helped set, you know, the, the international reputation of people like Carl Craig and the Belleville Three and others allowed them to promote it to a much bigger potential audience than just uh, music fans in Detroit. They're bringing in the whole electronic music world, or that's one of their goals, is to make this, you know, a destination just like the Winter Music Conference in Miami had been a destination for quite a quite a while. And Carl Craig, you know, basically went to the mattresses. He cashed in all his chips. He was going directly to his DJ friends, going around their booking agents, 
trying to recruit as many big players as he could to be on the bill. And he recruits Questlove of the Roots, who is, um, you know, one of the leaders of, of the neo-soul movement at this point in time. He's working with people like D'Angelo and Eric Badu, but also working with Detroit's own Jay Dilla. So there's, you know, some, some so natural also on the lineup. Yes, exactly. And we'll talk about him in a bit. But so there's a lot of this synergy going on and the hip hop scene, <clears throat> hip hop and R&B have kind of coalesced. And part of that, co- some of those people have coalesced in this sort of reactionary neo soul movement. I'm not going to bag on neo soul, but it's, you know, some kind of retro movement, but it was kind of self-consciously retro, but, but it had a lot of thought leaders that were getting a lot of press. Um, and selling some records, some of them, and, and getting gearing up, for, you know, D'Angelo in particular is going to be huge down the line. And, you know, it was a strategy. They wanted to get non-electronic fans to come down. They wanted to be able to tell their friends and relatives, hey, most deaf is going to be playing for free down in Hart Plaza. And, you know, but they also knew there was going to be a tourist influx that, you know, the 313 mailing list, which was the sort of Detroit rave list, Everybody was uh, everybody on that list was going to be coming in, but what degree beyond that they didn't know. Yeah, and they there, also- was, there was a real sense of cynicism that floated around the idea as it was coming together. Because everybody in Detroit basically said it, it, either it would not come together, or if it did, it'd be another 1994 World Party disaster. And that's like from firsthand accounts of everybody involved. Like the first year had a almost fatalistic vibe for many of the key players in Detroit who were just beaten down by that point, by the realities of how the city can be, how city officials can be, uh, how the police are, and how hard it is to herd together, you know, the various different scenes in Detroit and the different crowds in Detroit. And, you know, there's there's a lot of good reasons for why they didn't really trust the city, because the city almost screwed the venue, uh, the, the entire festival over uh, quite large uh, for the first year. It was It was by the skin of their teeth that the city finally cut them a check so that they could actually hold the event and sign off on the permits to allow them to uh, to actually hold the, hold the festival at all. Yeah, but one thing they were immediately planning for three three years worth of festivals, and and the thinking on that was in part that they knew if they were going to bring in a bunch of out of town and out of genre talent people like the roots and and most stuff that that was going to mean that some of the detroit djs and producers were going to get bumped and so to try to accommodate those hurt feelings they wanted to say hey you'll be on the bill next year but this is some pretty big names i mean like robert hood of underground resistance or formerly of underground resistance alan oldham uh were both left off the bill definitely some bitterness there and to me kind of robert hood and carl craig kind of fill a similar niche so i can see why there would be some rivalry there. Yeah, Oldham uh, came in on year three after after Craig was removed and and kind of uh, put together, helped put together a lineup that was kind of a, a response to the way that Carl Craig had booked the first two years. But the funny thing is, Craig Craig was, was very specific about the fact that if I missed you year one, we'll get you year two. And year two, literally, I think Derek May was the only repeating DJ, he, including Carl Craig, didn't play year two. Uh, just played the after party and stuff like that. But uh, he was very serious about, okay, year two, completely new lineup, only one repeating DJ. And that's pretty generous of him. But let's stick to year one. Another guy that gets roped in is Tim Price, who's Richie Houghton's aide-de-camp, gets hired as the production manager. But like you said, the city was foot-dragging on the paperwork with two weeks left to go there. Nothing had been signed. So um, Carl Craig's brother-in-law, worked for Lisa Webb, who was Mayor Archer's uh, executive aide, which 
you know, had the inside angles greased on that. And so they got a meeting with Lisa Webb just one week before, and they brought in a CD-ROM, uh, and that was back when it was a big deal to burn your own CDs. Um, and they 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 had plenty of Herbie Hancock and Stevie Wonder on there to show her that all electronic music wasn't, quote, weird, that, you know, popular hit artists like Herbie Hancock and Stevie Wonder that were totally accepted in the established bougie black community you know, we're also doing electronic music and that they would be represented, if not themselves, but that kind of music would be represented at the show. So um, got her on board and they find signed the final paperwork on Friday with just 24 hours to go. And so that sets off this rush to set up the sound system, had the same sound system as Jazz Fest, which obviously not going to be adequate for what they want to do. But, uh, you know, Thixton, um Rob Thixon of Carl Craig's Planet E record label, his goal was if we can get 10,000 people over the next three days, our job is done. So that's, um, you know, that's that was the kind of goal they were shooting for. And clearly they met it. But let's go ahead and hear our next thing. This is um, part of Stacey Pullen's set from the first Detroit Electronic Musical Festival. Stacey Pullen at the Detroit Electronic Musical Festival 2000. Why'd you pick this set and why this part of this set? Uh, Stacey Pullen played one of the the last sets of the night on Saturday night, and he was kind of talking about his favorite moment. And he, he was talking about playing this this track, which has the Martin Luther King sample in it, and just the vibe being uh, just just palpable. So I thought, uh, you know, I, I dug through YouTube. There's a bunch of depth videos, but they're they are, they, you know, talk about low res. Uh, this isn't 360p. This is 144p. This is like the lowest of the low res. But the sound quality ain't bad, and you get like a feel for for what was going on at the stage at that time, and for the fact that you know, even though it was a techno oriented event with lots of techno DJs, they were also swinging across and playing a lot of house and 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 all of the kind of house tech tech house stuff. So it gives you a little bit of a feel for for the sound and the vibe and, and maybe some of the more cultural uh, moments from the night. Yeah, and it was it was quote this whole Woodstock togetherness vibe uh, during Stacy Pullen's set, and we don't mean Woodstock '99, we mean Woodstock '69, which is probably a little overstated, but the, but you know it's become synonymous in American culture with. You got to figure with Detroit, uh, you know, a lot of the people in the city were were talking about the fact that you know we might be used to this at at raves, seeing everybody getting along, but out in Hart Plaza in Detroit, just seeing this complete mix of people. Uh, and everybody having a great time and nobody having a problem with anybody else. It's, it is, you know, this is this is the mainstream people and their first experience with with this big melting pot that is electronic dance music. Yeah. And it's also a big win for the city of Detroit under black administrators, because, you know, for like 30 years, basically, urban Detroit had been abandoned by white flight. And you'd had a number of black mayors who'd come in and were, you know, totally up against it in every way, shape or form. 
And nobody had really united the city back together again since the riots of 1967. And honestly, the riots of 1943 hadn't even healed. Detroit has this hideously ugly history of race riots and white flight. And there had been obviously a great music scene in Detroit in the 60s with Motown and Aretha Franklin. And you had the rock side with MC5 and the Stooges and Ted Nugent and all that kind of stuff. Grand Funk Railroad, Alice Cooper. But when they had the big music festivals in that region, it tended to be just the white rockers. You did have Sun Ra and Chuck Berry headline a music fest um, with MC5 at one point, but the really big festivals tended to be more just for the white rockers and Motown moved out to LA. So this festival, I think, has a big, it's just a big signpost in the history of Detroit as a city and, and a real you know, kumbaya come together moment under the leadership of black officials that is a feel good win for everybody, I think. And, you know, but but uh, they set up five stages. They're going to have house, techno, breakbeats, fast, slow, all kinds of stuff, mostly locals on the lineup. And then Saturday afternoon, it starts and people are going, what general public? Initially, most of the people there at Hart Plaza were homeless people who were there 24-7 anyway. It's rainy and windy. Um Carl Craig's wife, Hannah Sautel, plays a set. She's playing, you know, mellow jazz funk oldies, like Give Me the Sunshine, trying to to literally sort of wish away the rain. She's got um, Wind Parade by Donald Byrd playing. It's being stru- streamed online by Groove Tech, which is a Seattle webcaster, which was totally state-of-the-art at that time. Um, you know, by the afternoon, you got... Some people are saying there's 200 people milling around the plaza. Others saying there's 50 punters there uh, enjoying the music. But still, um, some of the shows are already getting people excited, like Max Ernestus and Moritz von Oswald from Berlin, a.k.a. Rhythm and Sound, although they'd also produce records as basic channels. Maurizio, Quadrant, and Phillips uh, blew away Jonah Sharp um, and then followed they came on after Tiki Man and Scion, which was unannounced, Scion, another Berlin group. Um, but still, you know, a lot of groups are now showing Isotope 217, which is a spinoff of Chicago's post-rock group Tortoise, now showed. But people were filling in the gaps. If somebody was missing a set, somebody was ready to jump in. Yeah, there was a whole bunch of kind of chaos after uh, the big rush to set everything up. Half the people involved in the festival were up all night the night before, just rushing to try and get this thing going. And then half of them slept through their own sets on the opening morning. And of course, nobody knew, you know, how many people were going to show up. This was this was really on a wing and a prayer. And at, at the beginning, it was kind of slow. But, you know, by by two or three p.m., things were starting to fill up and it was already starting to feel comfortable and good. And then around three or four p.m., now it's getting packed and word of mouth is spreading out across the Internet fast. There are people posting online on all the different groups saying, get to Detroit. This thing's on. Yeah. And it's one of these deals where everybody's kind of pulling in all their chips to get people. And a lot of the local DJs have never really had a chance to bring their family in to see them. And so they're, you know, DJ Delano Smith hired a limo to bring his family down. So it's a real kind of, hey, ma, I made it kind of moment for a lot of people. And and all these different circles of people are coming in. And then um, DJ Theo Parrish of Chicago, although he's, he's operating out of Detroit at this time, but he came from Chicago. He'd been kind of knocking people who... Around this time, there was the beginnings of sort of retro electronic dance music culture and websites like the Deep House page were informing kids who had missed the Chicago scene the first go around of what they had missed. But 
for somebody like Theo Parrish who'd been there, he was like, you know, you're fraudulent if you're learning this stuff online. There's no way you can learn this stuff online. And he he um, set up his set as kind of a history lesson. And he featured, you know, tracks by Mr. Fingers, Black Ivory, Yaz, the English synth pop group, Fila Kuti, the Afro, Afro pop, Gil Scott Heron, and ending with Prince and the Revolution's America. But his middle stretch, according to Matos, was what stuck. First, he tipped to his hat his hat to his family with the intruders, I'll Always Love My Mama. Then he went into Donnie Hathaway's live version of The Ghetto, and he was able to take it to this non-danceable thing, said Patrick Russell. He just launches into this massive disco edit, and the whole place goes apeshit. And so, um, and the the edit Mustang One appears on a white label twelve inch on, that was on sale at the festival. And Russell says there was this little old lady dancing nonstop the whole time right in front of me. So, um, you know, Parrish is one of many DJs who pulls it out just a killer set and connects these dots and connects this history. And um, you know, all these people are turning up that have never come in together. You know, you got the the inner city fans showed up. Uh, these are the people that originally started techno way back in the early 80s you got white suburban metro which was the kind of the hardcore base of the second and third wave of detroit techno you've got euro diehards who are coming in from all around the world to see this stuff you know the berlin connection definitely uh, a lot of airline tickets were purchased from europe uh, for that weekend the i-94 ravers and these are the people who've been going to raves all the way up and down everywhere from montana all the way over to Milwaukee and Chicago and Detroit, they're all coming in. So, so the place is packed. And like um, John Ozzius of Motor went to he- pick up the headliner, Josh Wink, at the airport. And Josh Wink was insisting on going straight to Hart Plaza instead of going back to his hotel. And by that time, it had filled up. He said in two hours, it had gone from empty to a solid sea of people. It was this whole Woodstock togetherness vibe, like we mentioned before. So, yeah really must have been exciting and, and a vindication for all the people who've been working on this music for so long. Yeah, and it's worth mentioning as well that Motor is uh, is the Motor Lounge. It was kind of like the the follow up to the Mus- Music Institute. It came along a bit long, uh, later and 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 kind of carried the torch for for Detroit techno and just Detroit electronic music for a while. It, it was the after hours club for several years, and and Motor helped out with the first year uh, and a couple of the other years as well. And uh, we're, we're just like a, a big force in Detroit at the time. Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. When we come back, we'll talk about Saturday, the hip-hop day of the festival, or Sunday. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And so they have a great Saturday, and they they get up to do it again on Sunday. More rain early, but the rain stops mid-afternoon, and people are just coming in droves. And, you know, this is the hip-hop day. You've got Slum Village, which featured Jay Dilla, uh, J.D., as he was known at the time, um, as one of, uh, you know, as the DJ of that group. Um, And The Roots are also... (laughs) performing that day most deaf um as well from new york and then you know the roots out of philly and you also had locals lackey daisical dj house shoes and the breakfast club playing and then he gets into um a, a pretty good I, and i love the way matos does this he weaves in the history of kind of what's been going on on the scene at the time in another angle that um had been growing over several years in the late 90s was this electro revival and booty which was a new style bringing um these elements together and it's something that that people like jay dilla were very attuned to and jay dilla is one of a wave of genius hip-hop producers who have been listening to what's going on on the electronic music side as well as what's been going on in you know the black strip clubs and the and the black ghettos in miami and Detroit and Chicago and keeping up with what's getting what people are getting down to and to me it's part of what we're going to see in the 2000s when hip-hop just dominates everything when hip-hop basically steals the rock audience and steals the dance audience we're about to have a decade in the wilderness on the electronic music side as far as popular acclaim going to come back big at the end of that decade but to me one thing I've been fascinated with lately is the way hip hop producers incorporated so many of the innovations of electronic music and put it together in a way that was just really packaged for popular success. Yeah, definitely. And it's cool seeing uh, this, this festival features so many of these guys and uh, how it how it drew uh, an eclectic mix of people all together to make the festival like a big success. Yeah, and and then you know it gets into a little bit of this history history lesson on electro and booty, and and you know electro is something we've been talking about. It was uh, Cybertron, the the original group of Juan Atkins was in that electro pioneer of the electro wave, along with Africa Bambata and Planet Rock. Um, and electro had never really gone away in Detroit. It had stayed one of the lingua franca in the dance clubs there, in the strip clubs, etc. And in the mid-90s, there was a new wave of electro. Like People like the Two Live Crew in Detroit had kept it alive. But there's a new wave of artists who are kind of self-consciously retro electro. And one of them is um, Drexia, 
Do you have, is that a way to say that? Yeah, yeah, you got it. All right, Drexia, uh, which is Gerald Donald and James Stinson, who got their PR strategy from underground resistance, meaning they had none. <laughs> they did not want to talk to the press. They also had a whole mythology about aquatic warriors who were born from a pregnant women who were thrown overboard during the Middle Passage and came back as these heroic warriors. You also had Ectomorph, which originally had Gerald Donald in it as well, uh, along with Brendan M. Gillen, a.k.a. BMG. But um, Erica Sherman soon replaces Gerald Donald in Ectomorph. And, you know, Gillen's a a former program director at Ann Arbor's WCBN, the college radio station. I think that kind of tells, gives you a clue as to some of the people that are involved in the Electro Revival it's like kind of a two-pronged thing. You get kind of these white middle-class kids who are sort of intellectually coming back to this as a retro movement, but you also have um, all these... All the really, OGs. Yeah, and the OGs are still at it, and also this new wave of black DJs and producers who are pushing a style that's called booty, a.k.a. ghetto tech or Detroit bass or booty bass. And a lot of the uh, traditional, you know, like the Belleville 3 were not big on booty, but guys like... Um, Jerry, Gary Chandler, Wax Tracks and Dre, DJ Godfather, DJ Assault, DJ Polo. They're um, making these tracks that are just ubiquitous in the strip clubs. They're getting FM radio play on Friday and Saturday nights in Detroit. And it's uh, it's an eclectic style. And one of my favorites, I really like going back and listening to this stuff, although it's not stuff I can listen to in the car with my kids. Definitely um, <laughs> not. And it's not even something that got recorded from the original Demp. I was looking for DJ Godfather's Demp set because it was apparently legendary, but I wasn't able to find it, at least not uh, not in the couple of hours that I was digging around and looking. I guess I guess the, uh, the official streamers didn't carry all the booty yeah and and i think that it, this was a scene that was not uh lauded by the tastemakers on the electronic dance music scene this this was underground stuff this was stuff in the hood that um you know real folks were getting down to it was not necessarily stuff that the eggheads in berlin uh, you know were rubbing their chin and thinking about but it's it's really stylistically innovative it, it combines jump up jungle Chicago Ghetto and Booty House, which we talked about in previous episode. They were also clearly listening to Berlin Minimal Techno. A lot of Miami bass is in there. Um, Lil John and Dirty South producers like that um, are also influencing it and being influenced by it. You know, you get people like Project Matt Pat out of Memphis, who is connected to the Three Six Mafia. His track Gel and Weave is is um, you know would fit easily into these sets. I like Dim Hose by Lil John was another one that did, but also things like Groove Lacord by uh, Errol Bricka, who is a Swedish techno producer, crossed over into that crowd. So they're pretty voracious and omnivorous and really innovative. And this is, you know, Jay Dill is hanging out at the strip club, spending the money he's making on his Tribe Called Quest productions and is way into this stuff as well. And it starts to impact his his kind of second era of, of Jay Dilla production. So, um you know, I think it, I think it's 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 pretty cool stuff, and I like the way Matos weaves this in because it's definitely adjacent to the electronic music scene. This is not something that Richie Houghton and Derek May or whatever are talking up. This is something that's going on a little more underground. Yeah, it's completely kind of adjacent to, but still very very deep in the electronic uh, music scene. Yeah, and and it's funny to hear like the account of the sets. Like Adult was one of these 
I guess, electro revival groups that are playing. They described it as terribly disorganized, but really fun. There was no sound check. So what they did was bring the instruments up one at a time, like just start playing the kick drum and asking the crowd, does that sound all right? Does that sound all right? And and you can find that set online and it is fun. You do get to hear it. It's a good time. Cool. Yeah. Bring it in the hi-hat one after the other. And then DJ Godfather, a.k.a. Brian Jeffries, is up next. And he's got girls climbing the fences and shaking their butts. And there's some generational head scratching going on as to what's going on. And then Ectomore followed them at 7 p.m. Um, and you know, just, uh, uh, big doings and, and, and everything's clicking at the Detroit musical festival. Well, let's hear our next track. This is Moody man with Umar bin Hassan, Hassan, um, who's, uh, uh, one of the last poets, which is, you know, the last poets along with Gil Scott Heron were kind of this funk adjacent early seventies spoken word slash funk record makers that, was a precursor of hip hop, but not necessarily a direct influence on the initial, like DJ Cool Herc wasn't necessarily listening to the last poets or Gil Scott Heron, but people like Chuck D were that are going to be the, you know, the golden age of hip hop. And, um, you know, even though Gil Scott Heron and the last poets never had massive chart success, they definitely had a massive cultural impact. And this is Moody Man with Umar bin Hassan of, the last poets doing a Gil Scott Heron number in words are scared of revolution. And I'm scared to say the N word. So there you go. Niggas are scared of revolution, but niggas shouldn't be scared of revolution because revolution is nothing but change. And all niggas do is change. Niggas coming from work and change in the pimp clothes. They the streets and make some quick change. Niggas change their hair from black to red to blonde, from perm to dread to curls and black to red to blonde. And over like hell, the looks will change. Niggas kill other niggas when they don't receive a next change. Niggas change, change, change. You and niggas change. Things are changing, things are changing, yeah, things are changing. Nigga things into black nigga things, black nigga things that go through all kinds of changes. The change in the day that makes them mad rave, black power, black power. And that's Moody Man with Umar Ben Hassan of The Last Poets doing Gil Scott Heron's Ends Are Scared of Revolution. Why'd we pick this one? Uh, you know, like the, the book describes the Moody Man said it's this this interesting mix of of funk and political awareness and some shade being thrown at the 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 the, the tourists in in the city and everything like that. And I'm just like, I have to track this down and check this out. And it's it's very interesting. And it's uh and yeah, I just figured if if we wanted to get some Umar bin Hassan in there uh for the spoken word por- portion of it to show kind of how he was incorporating live kind of slam poetry into his set. And this is the perfect clip, even if it is, uh, you know, a little bit explicit for our white, our white sensibilities. Yeah, I, I definitely don't mind hearing it. Just not, uh, not my place to to say all, all the words. But I also think it's important to show the way that the DJs at this festival were consciously connecting it back to Afro-American music of earlier periods. So you know, bringing somebody like Omar Ben Hassan of the Last Poets on stage definitely signals you know they're down with their history and and as one of the witnesses said his whole set talking about moody man um whose name is kenny dixon jr whose dad was a motown session player not really one of the a-list funk brothers but he played on some some key records um but you know moody man's whole set was playing curtis mayfield records and talking on the mic to his buddies i was in heaven (laughs) well isn't this kind of like how uh, theo Parrish was saying earlier that you can't 
you can't understand this music just by going online and, and, and listening to like individual tracks. And I feel like a set like this puts the music, all these sets that were being played at Dempf, a lot of these guys were, were taking great care to, uh, to kind of tell a story of, of Detroit and the music being made in Detroit and where they came from and where they were going. And, uh, you know, this is one of those examples of getting out on the ground and getting a real education from these people who have been there since the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. And then up next, uh, Mayor Archer himself introduces Slum Village um, and, you know, Jay Dilla's on, on stage there. And, you know, Jay Dilla goes, has kind of been martyred. He passed away tragically in 2006 from a variant of lupus. Um, but, you know, his drum machine is in the Smithsonian, Dan Charnas. I've got an interview with Dan Charnas. I'm going to drop next season about Jay Dilla. Jay Dilla is one of these figures who has gone on not just to influence hip hop, not just to influence pop and electronic music, but has influenced jazz and classical music and rock music. I was just watching some rock drummer talking to Rick Beto. He spent five minutes talking about Jay Dilla's innovations and timing and showing it on his drum set. So Jay Dilla is one of these figures that has transcended genre and just become, you know, sort of a Duke Ellington style figure in American music. So, you know, I, I don't know. It, it makes me a little verklempt thinking about the mayor of Detroit introducing him in his hometown to a crowd like this. And Jay Dillon was hip to the electronic scene. He had worked with Dixon. He had done remixes for Carl Craig's Planet E Records. He hipped Questlove to Daft Punk and a ton of other stuff. Questlove was sort of like the St. Peter of Jay Dilla. I mean, he just learned and learned and learned from Jay Dilla and soaked up so much of it. And, yeah, you know, and Jay Dilla was sampling old Roulet records. That was uh, that was Thomas Bangalter and uh, and. Uh, yeah, Tom uh, Bangalter's label that was releasing a whole bunch of that early French touch, and Jay Dilla was sampling it and crossing it over into uh, hip hop. So very cool stuff. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, and it wasn't all uh, sweetness and light. Questlove, who was pretty heavy by his own admission at this point, uh, put his leg through a milk crate that they were using for steps up to get on the stage. He gets a nasty cut in his calf. Goes ahead and plays his set, and then goes ahead and and hangs out with Jay Dill afterwards instead of going to the hospital to get cleaned up, you know, because he just wants to to keep the music going. And then uh, we come to Monday. And, you know, the crowds had metastasized so much that news crews were arriving. Um, and then you've got Clark Warner, who opens with his own political statement or his own musical statement, opens with an ambient set and plays Manuel Gotching's E2-E4 in full, which, you know, this is a German electronic uh, music album from the early 80s that was a huge influence on the Belleville 3, something that you would hear on the Electric Wizard on the radio way back in the day. It was also the last song played by Derek May uh, when he shut down the, the Music Institute back in the day. We talked about that a while ago. So it's um, another political message that, you know, this is the roots of this music or some some an additional branch of the roots of this music that it's 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 also drawing heavily from this european electronic music um and it's interesting juan atkins no shows to protest his placement on the bill and shows up up when he thought he should be playing but i wasn't clear did he end up getting to play uh apparently so apparently moved some stuff around he was originally set for 4 p.m and he showed up around 8 p.m i believe was was, was the situation and they kind of bumped somebody 
over to the side or somebody else hadn't shown up. So it wasn't actually too difficult. You know, when you get, when you do that, it's like 50, 50, it'll work. And sometimes, you know, in a chaotic situation, it just, you just step right in and it's perfectly fine. And other times you got to be a real heavy about it. And apparently, you know, he was a bit of a heavy, not showing up for his earlier set, but everything just kind of slid down and then he stepped in. So he, he made it work in a, in yeah. a jerky way. And and I got to sign off on it. I think I think he had the the right to do that. The founder of the Belleville Three and and Cybertron and uh, so many other you know the the founding father of of Detroit techno. If anybody can say, but Dan Bell. I mean, but nothing nothing disrespectable about a four p.m. Uh, time slot at a daytime festival like this, though. So just put, putting true. that out there too. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. And Dan Bell was happy to take uh, take that uh, slot. But um, the guy that gets the 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 nod. Per Matos for the most emotionally charged performance of the afternoon was Anthony Sheikh Shakir, who um, had been skeptical and critical of Carl Craig's plans. Um, he was suspicious that Carl Craig was going to be bringing all these white artists into Detroit, but the success of the festival had left him flummoxed by his own admission, and um, he just went in there and played a killer set. He, he, I think this is one of the first shows he's playing in a wheelchair. He had just been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis shortly before that, so kind of a uh, emotionally charged just from you know people seeing him and what he was going through. But there's a great story about uh, the breakdancing circle that erupted uh, in front of the stage for his set, and there's you know they just Describe how there's this white middle class looking dad, obviously from the suburbs, holding his kid up on his shoulders in the middle of the break dancers. And the break dancers are all going out of their way to make sure that that kid has a good time and gets to dig the break dancing up close. So it's it's a real kumbaya moment. And for a city like Detroit, that is no small thing. I mean, we we're talking about a city that Motor City has been burning in 1943. Motor City was burning in 1967. Motor City was burning on Hell Night, you know, basically uh, for the entire decade of the 70s and 80s and 90s. So seeing the city come together around the electronic music that had been birthed in this city and gone on to conquer the world and finally is getting some love in its home, it's, it's uh, you know, makes me misty eyed. Yeah, I mean, it's it's being recognized by the Detroit underground. It had a it had a scene and it was recognized and respected and everything else like that. But to have this moment in the mainstream, you know, it's it's always that weird thing we talk about mainstream acceptance is both this thing that the rave scene doesn't want, but also like desperately you know, wants just at least a little taste of. And this this was that taste that the scene needed in order for everybody to finally feel like, you know, instead of Detroit history being buried and uh, people getting no credit, now all of these guys were still around and they finally got, you know, their kudos for for everything that they did as a contribution from the city. Yeah. So and, and you got to know that it was a big moment to bring your moms in and stuff. And anybody could get it, you know, like when you've got nearly a million people coming to see these uh, performers, it's obvious this music is a big deal. And, you know, everybody's family is there to see it in just an undeniable way. So it had to be really sweet for those DJs who got to play on a set. <laughs> I feel bad for Robert Hood and others that, that um, had to wait or hold them. Um, but let's hear our last track. This is the Aztec Mystic Jaguar from 2000.
that was Jaguar by the Aztec Mystic, a.k.a. DJ Rolando. Why do we pick this one? Uh, it's officially considered the unofficial theme song to Demp. It was the hottest track as played like dozens of time over the course of the festival. And it was just, uh, you know, caused a bidding war afterwards. Everybody wanted to sign this, but, uh, you know, the, uh, the Detroit labels wanted to hold on to it and it caused a little bit of a, of a kerfuffle. Yeah. Underground resistance had put it out in 1999. Uh, Sony music Germany tried to license it for Europe, but UR got crucial and said no. So Sony music commissioned a ripoff track, a quote tone by tone remix cover by an act calling itself Don Jaguar. Um, but UR pushed back and, you know, got enough, made, made enough of a ruckus in the scene that Sony dropped the record. Um, ultimately somebody else, BMG records puts it out. Um, but, UR then puts out a remix EP and buries the BMG remake. So this is something that's been going on way back to the 1920s. Pat Boone covering Little Richard and Fats Domino was kind of the high watermark of this kind of appropriation and burial by uh, major labels. So it was pretty sweet to see Underground Resistance able to beat the majors at their own game and 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 keep the real stuff but ultimately rolando uh was more open-minded to the being corrupted by the the big music industry than than underground resistance where he ultimately moved on and signed with the major but nonetheless he plays at dempf at 6 p.m and then Derek may follows and then richie hot and close so it's kind of like you know babe ruth lou gehrig Ty Cobb or whatever. I mean, I know those guys didn't play together at the same time, but I couldn't think of a, a murderer's row of hitters. Um, <laughs> I don't know why yeah. I went to a baseball metaphor, but anyway. Oh, no, it's a good one. It's a good one. Those are, those are classics. I feel like everybody will know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. So just, you know, they're, they're ending the set on a high note. And um, Richie Houghton in particular uh, is is at, at – at a peak he had just put out a mix cd dex effects in 909 in 1999 that while it wasn't exactly a live cd because at some point you know like four records are being mixed it's him with his turntables and a 909 drum machine and, and, and a few effects playing live as a dj just kind of state-of-the-art here's what a dj can do as a live musician and you know, it's it's perfect feel good. As somebody said, it felt like being in the locker room of a team that had just won the Stanley Cup. So a hockey metaphor there and 900,000. Matos waits till the end of the chapter. You already spoiled it, though, by by dropping the numbers earlier. But Matos waits till the end of the chapter to, to say that 900,000 was the final estimated crowd over the three days of the festival. So considering that their goal was to get 10,000 people in, massive, massive win. Yeah, there's there's lots of different numbers that are that are thrown around. the The official number on Wikipedia and stuff like that has it just over a million. Um, and you know, like there, there there's talk about oh, this wasn't properly estimated, but it's used by the 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 estimate was done in the standard way that the police do the estimates for all festivals and and you know, be that jazz fest or whatever else like that. So we're just counting it the way that all the other events are counted. And it's quite the quite a massive success and a lot of people passing through. Yeah, and and is it fair to say that this was kind of like, I guess, sort of Richie Houghton's third era of major creativity and kind of his last, the last point at which he's kind of at the forefront of electronic music globally? Uh, no, not really. He's got a lot of stuff going on. He he, he was, uh, after 2000, he goes really down at a minimal hole. 
and and you know just basically sits and, and does a, a ton of minimal technoism very important for for those guys there and then around 2010 he goes off to Ibiza and kind of uh, reimagines himself as something of a bit more of a showman techno guy, a bit closer to his Dex effects in 909 days, because that was when he was really, uh, you know, he, he took all of his minimal techno tracks and he layered three or four on top of each other. And all of a sudden you got one fully formed, exciting track with, you know, him pulling in and out elements and stuff. And it had a real, uh, virility to it, you know? And so this is definitely, I think him, him at his peak, uh, in Detroit, so you can you can give it that. Okay, um, that's that's fair enough, and and I, I still feel like this is kind of a last hurrah for the electronic music scene for a while. That this this is this peak, and Matos doesn't tease us with what's coming next as much as he usually does. But I gotta spoil it. What's coming next is gonna suck. <laughs> uh, is it <laughs> is it nine eleven or is it? Uh, it just... It's. It's 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 the post 9/11 crackdown, the Rave Act, and stuff like that is coming in a big way, and and the you know ATF and DEA and FBI are going to be heavily mentioned in our next uh, couple of episodes. So, yeah, I mean, there's big events, uh, but the reason why things didn't really catch on, I feel, is that there was never any ability for momentum to be built for whatever reason, uh, be it world events, be it political or police actions, uh, be it, you know, like promoters just falling off the wagon uh, and descending into drug use and et cetera. So there's all sorts of reasons why why there was never any momentum that was able to get built. Uh, Electric Demp uh, uh, kind of fell off after in the second year, the festival organizers fired Carl Craig three weeks before the event, which is just, if you're going to fire somebody, fire them after the festival, not before. So the entire festival kind of became a protest of the fact that Carl Craig had been fired uh, so things things got a bit messy with Demp for a for for a couple of years there until uh, until uh, Paxahow, which is a a group of techno promoters who'd been around Detroit doing stuff since 1993, they stepped in in 2006 and finally like sorted things out and have things running in a pretty even keel now. Even though it is now a, a you know a $300 bracelet standard festival instead of an open open to everybody in the park type event. Yeah, but I think, um, you know, another thing to consider is that last time we kind of talked about the high watermark of the major labels electronica push, which, you know, ultimately ends with Big Beat going down in flames at Woodstock 99. Although actually, you know, Fatboy Slim set went fine. It's just that the riots started immediately after. But, you know, the key people in Big Beat are going to move away from that style. The record companies stop pushing it. Moby has this massive success with the Play album, but it's largely associated with commercials and TV spots and movie spots, and it's not kind of rock stardom or whatever people maybe had been expecting for him. And that these, I think the fact that the big names at the Detroit Electronic Music Festival here are first and second wave Detroit techno guys, although DJ Rolando, I guess we'd consider third wave. Um, they are big in the dance underground, but are not poised at all to capitalize via the mainstream. You know, they weren't selling albums and CD stores to rock fans like me, the way the Chemical Brothers or Fatboy Slim were. And, you know, so it's it's kind of a one-off and, and yet another moment where the wave reaches a high point on the shore 
but then it's going to recede. And like I said, hip hop is just going to be coming into its own in the 2000s. And, you know, people like Jay Dilla and Timbaland um, and, you know, the Neptunes and uh, DJ Screw, who's about to pass away, but his music is about to, you know, get massively uh, successful in the 2000s. So hip hop is just going to be dominating uh, and, you know, we'll find out what happens to the electronic scene next time. What were you going to say? Yeah, rave just stays in the underground and it struggles there as, uh, you know, it has its success and then it has the police coming in and the government coming in and, and, and really giving it a turbulent time. So I guess that's next. Yep. And also the electro clash uh, scene. So it gets oh, that's a little... fun. That's fun. Yeah. It's fun, but it's also retro. Retro. The the you know the critics hate retro. So we'll we'll talk about that next time. For Ryan Harkness, I'm Nate Wilcox, and we've been discussing Michelangelo Matos's The Underground is Massive, how electronic dance music conquered America. Follow the Let It Roll Podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. Next week. Ryan and Nate discuss Disco Donnie, the DEA, and the rave bus that brought the first era of rave to an end. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.